If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Take something iconic, like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA. Used under license by FCA US LLC. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Throughout our history as a species, we've been accompanied by germs and parasites. From the dangers of the plague to the spread of smallpox, infectious diseases have posed a deadly threat to humans for millennia. Our section editor, Rhiannon Davies, spoke to Kyle Harper, author of a new book on the history of infectious disease, Plagues Upon the Earth, about how parasites have shaped our past. The first question I wanted to ask you is, you argue that our history as a species is inseparable from the history of germs and parasites. Why is this? Well, I think one way to try and look at human history is... In the same way that uh, a natural scientist might look at the, the history of any other organism or species, we just happen to have a, a very eventful history that's uh, driven by a cumulative culture-driven change. So when we talk about human history in the very big picture, we mean things like the, the rise of farming, the domestication of animals, the, the rise of cities, the creation of huge trading networks and transportation technologies like um, ships that can cross oceans, railroads, steamships, now jet planes. Every one of these inventions, one of these technological innovations in human history 
has consequences for human health. And more specifically, every one of these technological innovations that changes the way we live changes the kinds of, of germs that, that we have. And so I think one of the great themes in human history is the, the relationship between the way we change the, the planet, the physical environment in which we live, and the way in which the evolution of pathogens responds to, to those changes. And so the, the great diseases throughout human history, measles, smallpox, plague, malaria, tuberculosis, are all, in a sense, evolutionary responses to the way that humans live and the way that we change the environments around us. I'm going right back now to when our ancestors first made fire. How did this have an impact on infectious disease? What happened then? Well, in a lot of ways, fire is is a technology that, that makes us human. Uh, it actually is controlled or, or the discovery of how to control fire actually predates Homo sapiens. It goes back into to earlier hominin ancestors, probably Homo erectus, learned to control fire. And it's not the only thing that makes hominins distinctive, but it's one of the really preeminent things that, that makes us us. Uh, the ability to, to consume energy through combustion is a power. It's a powerful thing that, that sets our species and, and our ancestors apart from, for instance, other great apes. So chimpanzees and, and um, gorillas that are some of our closest relatives are very confined to where they live. Chimpanzees live in tropical forests. They don't uh, live in Arctic tundra uh, and in, in semi-desert environments. Whereas humans can live almost anywhere on the planet. And fire is one of the big technological reasons why. Humans are powerful ecosystem engineers. We take landscapes and, and change them for our benefit. And fire is one of the tools that really allows us to do this. And we now have a very good understanding that uh, hominins move around, they migrate, they wander. And Homo erectus is, is a wanderer. And uh, these early archaic humans move out of our evolutionary birthplace in Central and Eastern Africa and migrate across um, uh, Europe and Asia and occupy a huge range of ecosystems. Now, that's really interesting for the history of disease because diseases, infectious diseases are caused by microorganisms that uh, live in, in the environment and in other animal populations. And so as our ancestors spread around the, the planet and occupied virtually every habitable niche on the planet. It also meant that we were exposed to new germs, to a much wider array of pathogens than we might have been if we were simply confined to, to one kind of ecosystem. So in a sense, our, our versatility as a species, which has a lot of benefits and upsides, also means that, that we occupy a, a range of different environments and are thereby exposed to a huge array of different diseases. And I think that's sometimes a, a part of the, the early formation of a, a distinctly hominin relationship with disease that, that we haven't always accounted for. 
And you said that hominins move around, but obviously skipping forward in history, we give up this hunter-gatherer lifestyle where we're moving around looking for food to become farmers. So we're rooted to one spot of land and begin to domesticate animals. And what impact does that have on our health in terms of infectious disease? Well, the transition to farming is, along with the, the transition to industrial capitalism in the modern world, is one of the two really fundamental changes in the way human beings live. So from the, the very origin of our species, which is maybe 250, 300,000 years ago, until about 10,000 years ago, we were hunter-gatherers. And hunter-gatherers move around a lot, and they take their food by, uh, by finding it or killing it. Uh, and they, they have low population densities. And that, that's a really fundamental feature of the, their disease environments, that they're mobile and have low population densities. Uh, 10,000 years ago, there are probably only a few million humans on Earth. That makes us pretty successful for a primate, uh, but nothing like what we are today, where there's nearly 8 billion humans. How do there get to be 8 billion humans? Well, the, the short answer is we figure out how to, to make food and not just take food from the environment. We domesticate plants and animals. This happens uh, around a dozen times in different parts of the world. So there's not one singular moment. There's not one singular revolution. And this used to be called the Neolithic Revolution. We now understand that it's a, a very complex process, but it's one of the the most fundamental transitions in human health as well. And it impacts human health in a range of different ways, changes in diet, changes in labor, but it absolutely transforms our disease environments. And the rise of farming sets in motion uh, an acceleration of pathogen evolution and the, the construction of a really distinct human disease pool. And that has to do, not to be too vulgar for our listeners, but a lot of that has to do with feces, doesn't it? Um, for, both from humans and from the animals that we're domesticating. How does that link to the rise of pathogens that are deadlier than ever? It's, it's you, you said it very well. <laughs> you said it very well. The I, I think it's important to step back and remind ourselves that that the burden of diarrheal diseases and dysenteries on human societies is enormous. And we sometimes forget that in wealthy societies today, but even today, the, the access to, to clean water is one of the, the fundamental privileges that, that we enjoy that's not uniformly distributed around the world. And it's easy for us to forget how recently, even in Western Europe or the United States, the, the burden of diarrheal diseases and dysenteries was simply enormous. And throughout our entire history, uh, since the rise of farming, this has been the case. One of the really important sources of, of sickness and death was the exposure to uh, these kinds of diseases that transmit via fecal, contaminated fecal matter that, that enter drinking water or food supplies or, or simply uh, are part of the, the domestic environment. And we, we forget that because of the, the amazing triumphs of public health and sanitation and hygiene in the late 19th and early 20th century. But 
uh, in the past, these kinds of diseases were dangerous. Most of them aren't quite as famous. They don't have the, the sort of notorious names like plague and malaria that everybody knows. Uh, for for absolutely no good reason that I can think of, shigellosis isn't isn't a, a kind of household word. But it was one of the really terrible scourges throughout human history. And the reason why human societies have suffered such a an extraordinary burden of these kinds of diseases is because of the environments that we created. When we gave up the hunter-gatherer lifestyle, we gave up the kind of extreme mobility that characterized those societies and took up sedentary life. We started living in permanent houses and permanent villages. And the consequence of that was that, frankly, we were surrounded by waste matter. And it turns out not just the waste matter of ourselves, but also of our animals, domesticated animals. And the, the Neolithic villages that we created starting around 10,000 years ago, if you look at it from the perspective of a, of a ecologist, are probably the single greatest accumulation of interspecies waste matter in all of nature. It's a really strange thing. And that's the ecological context that allows the, the evolution of so many different dangerous pathogens that cause diseases like bacillary dysentery, amoebic dysentery, typhoid, uh, and other gastroenteric diseases. And there's something else that I wanted to ask you about, which is um, insects. And there's one insect in particular, which is the mosquito, which plays quite a large role in your book. How is mosquitoes linked to the spreading of infectious diseases? Well, vector-borne diseases are infectious diseases that are transmitted from human to human, by the the transport services of an unwitting uh, insect vector, and uh, or I should say arthropod vector. Some some of these diseases are transmitted by ticks um, as well, and this is a really important means of transmission. And again, it's one that in very wealthy societies we're we're apt to underestimate, and that's really a a kind of privilege that that we take for granted. I think. But there's only so many ways a germ can get from one host to the next. Fecal oral route is one. Uh, obviously, the respiratory route is another. Um, so coughing, sneezing, droplets and aerosols that move from the, the respiratory tract of one person to the next. Uh, but the other really, really big one for human diseases is vector-borne transmission. And mosquitoes in particular play an enormous role. In a, in a huge range of really significant diseases, above all malaria. Malaria is the, the, the biggest of the big there, but there's a range of other uh, vector-borne diseases caused by mosquitoes like dengue fever and yellow fever, as well as others that are transmitted by uh, lice like typhus, which is a very important disease in, in human history. And these, these diseases are, are thus sort of shaped by the, the ecology of the insect vectors. And uh, wherever the mosquitoes that can transmit disease are, are places that are, that are often uh, very seriously affected by uh, infectious diseases. So I mentioned malaria. Malaria is one name for actually a number of closely related diseases that are caused by uh, by various species of plasmodia parasites. Uh, the, there are two really big forms of malaria, vivax malaria, which is uh, a very severe disease, uh, and then falciparum malaria, which is, which is one of the worst diseases that, that human societies have, have ever grappled with. 
And we forget, again, I think how widespread some of these diseases are today and certainly have been throughout our past. For instance, you don't think, uh, at least um, I, I don't think of England as a malarial place, but but actually in some of the, the lowlands, the coastal um, um, kind of um, swampy coastal areas and fens actually used to have um, a fairly significant burden of malaria. It was never geographically hugely widespread, but um, in parts of Kent and Sussex and Essex, um, there were there were regions where the kind of um, saline marshy areas supported the the existence of a particular mosquito. Um, a not, uh, it's an Anopheles mosquito, uh, the species uh, Atroparvus, that wherever that mosquito could live, malaria often really took hold and life expectancies were lower. Uh, it was really recognized that these, these places were somehow um, dangerous to live. And even the word uh, malaria is Italian, uh, but it means uh, bad air. And uh, in, in English, this used to be called mostly ague, so a kind of um, intermittent fever that's characterized by really intense um, um, chills followed by fever. Um, and uh, it's easy for us to, to take for granted that we understand how these diseases pass from one person to another. But in the, in the past, they really didn't. They kind of knew that there was an environmental dimension. They suspected there was something bad about the air. That's why it's called bad air. Um, and that sort of swampy and wet places uh, had damp and corrupt air that made people sick. And so there's an intuition there that's not completely wrong, that there's an environmental dimension to these diseases. But um, in the 19th century, the, the sort of riddle of why these environments supported the transmission of diseases is unlocked when a series of discoveries uh, allows, uh, allows us to, to come to comprehend that these are, in fact, diseases that are caused by uh, microbes that are transmitted by these vectors. So, uh, vector-borne transmission is very important, often uh, in places where where we don't think it was, and there are parallels in America too. We kind of forget that a lot of the Midwest, the Ohio and Mississippi River valleys, used to be pretty pretty swampy, and those areas were places where malaria vectors, mosquitoes, thrived and human health was worse. Um, it, it really impacted on human health until the advances of landscape drainage and events, eventually biomedical interventions helped us bring malaria under control. But uh, I think we should never underestimate the power of vector-borne diseases, both in the past, but even still in much of the world, the present. And thinking about progress, which is an overarching theme of your book, something that really interested me is it has a very complicated relationship with infectious disease. And you gave an example of the Roman Empire and said that the Roman Empire struggled a lot with infectious diseases, not because it was foundering, but because it was flourishing. How did progress aid the spread of infectious disease? Well, now we're on... uh pretty familiar territory for me. I'm, I'm a Roman historian by training. And actually, that's how I got into this uh, topic. As a, as a Roman historian, it seemed evident to me that one of the really powerful factors in Roman history was the, the impact of a, a series of major pandemics that struck the Roman Empire. And there's a lot of evidence for these pandemics. And I sort of wanted to understand, why did these happen? 
why now? And when you when you sort of stay within the the boundaries of conventional academic history, I'm a Roman historian. If I do Roman history, then I can explore these pandemics. But I actually think there's a lot to be gained from from zooming out, and that's certainly helped me. I think uh, understand what what happens in the Roman Empire. And as you say, uh, I think it's it's important to to realize that sometimes infectious diseases emerge not because a, a society's already in crisis or as a kind of consequence of other kinds of misery or trouble, but, but actually infectious diseases thrive off the, the conditions of, of human social development. And really from nature's perspective, that shouldn't maybe seem as paradoxical as it is because infectious diseases are caused by infectious agents by microparasites, whether viruses, bacteria, protozoa, uh, even in some cases by uh, fungi. And the, these are parasites that, like any organism in nature, they're, they're just trying to pass on their genes. They're, they're not, they, of course, don't have intentions or consciousness. It's blind forces of evolution, but they're rewarded if they happen to be good at getting energy or taking over cells and passing their genes onto future generations. It's just evolution. And parasites benefit when their hosts benefit. And from nature's perspective, we are just hosts uh, to our infectious diseases. And so when we multiply, when we create cities, when we create trade networks, it creates opportunities for our parasites. And so in the Roman case, we can see that in the second century, the, the height of the Roman Empire, what the great historian Edward Gibbon famously called the happiest age. It's, it's kind of a phase when in certain ways, a lot of things go right for the Roman Empire. There's lots of urbanization. The population multiplies. The Romans are trading with everybody. There's, there's a huge trade in spices and aromatics and slaves and silk uh, that connects the Roman Empire with, with Africa, with South Asia, even with East Asia. And in some ways, these very forces of urbanization, globalization in the Roman Empire create the conditions for them to, to be exposed to new pathogens and for infectious diseases to spread very rapidly within a, a highly interconnected Roman Empire. So I think for us, that seems paradoxical that that the the germs benefit from our success. But again, from, from an ecologist perspective, if we look at human history, the way an ecologist might, we can perfectly well understand why it is that the parasites benefit from, in this case, our species success. And one disease that really made the most of the trade networks. I mean, this is something that in your book you call a glamorous killer, which I very much enjoyed, as as opposed to the more humdrum killers. Um, and I wanted to ask you, because plague doesn't just come once, it will come again and again and again and keep rearing its head over a, per a period of decades or centuries. And what did this effect of the disease continuing to outbreak and outbreak and outbreak, what did this do to society? Right. Great, great way of framing the question. And as you were implying, there are bad infectious diseases and then there's plague. Uh, and we use plague sort of generically in English to mean pestilence. But here we're talking about the plague, which is a bacterial disease caused by the bacterium Yersinia pestis. It is 
it's an amazing disease, really, in, in every way. And there's a lot we know about it. It's one of the most studied diseases. And it's still, it's still mysterious in certain ways. I think there's a lot we don't really fully understand about plague and its history. But we benefit from a lot of new knowledge about this, this pathogen. It, and let me say first a little bit about why it's such a distinctive disease, because it's a, it's a zoonosis. It's an animal disease. It's really not a human disease. A disease like tuberculosis is a human disease. It can infect a few other animals, but we're the host. It specializes in us. In the case of plague, we're really an accident. We're totally irrelevant. It's a rodent disease and it survives permanently in populations of, of wild burrowing rodents like marmots and gerboas and gerbils. Uh, it seems to, to have its evolutionary origins in the, the Central Asian steppe. And it's living perfectly happy as a, as a disease of gerbils and so forth um, until it crosses paths with, with human societies. And the, the key to plague seems to be that it, it is spread by, uh, by fleas. So it's also a vector-borne disease that's an animal disease that turns out to spread terribly efficiently in populations of black rats. And again, it's kind of easy for us, I think, today to, to fail to really intuitively understand how important these commensal rodents, these rodents that thrive on human habitats, have been throughout our past. So ancient medieval villages and cities would have been just a paradise for black rats. And what's amazing about plague is that this disease, this bacterial disease that spread by fleas in wild rodent populations sort of explodes out of its natural habitats and reaches black rat populations that live everywhere around human habitations. And when that happens, it sparks these pandemics that are just mind boggling in their spatial scale and in their, their impact. And I, I believe that if we look at the entire sweep of human history with disease, the, the big plague pandemics of the past are probably the single greatest shocks. They, they kill the, the most people over a really, really large territory of any disease that we know of. Now, the famous one, of course, is the Black Death that strikes in the 1340s. Uh, and we're are learning so much about the, the deep history of plague. I mean, I could, I could go on and on, but there's a lot of amazing science going on uh, by archaeogeneticists, people who retrieve and study DNA from archaeological samples, from skeletons of, of victims. This was the first pathogen whose entire genome was sequenced from these ancient samples. It's a really amazing feat of, of laboratory science. Uh, and it helped us really nail down that the cause of the Black Death was Yersinia pestis. There'd been some doubt about that. It's also helped helped us write the, the deeper history of this pathogen, which seems to have been a part of the human story going back several thousand years. And certainly in the, the late Roman Empire, the 6th century, there's a massive pandemic known as the Plague of Justinian that in some ways is, is a parallel to the, to the Black Death. But to, to go back to your question, um, which, which gets at something that's kind of new and really important, is that the, the Plague of Justinian, the Black Death in the 14th century, 
are these huge mortality shocks that, I mean, you could study it for an entire lifetime and I think still be, um, find it, find it mind boggling, but it's important to realize that that's just the beginning and plague doesn't just strike once and then disappear. It lurks and then it recurs. And it's really important to try to account for these recurrent episodes of plague. So the, the second pandemic is the name we give to the, to the really long series of plague outbreaks that starts with the Black Death, but lasts in Western Europe down to really the late 17th century. There's a, there's a confined outbreak in the early 18th century. In the Eastern Mediterranean, the Near East, it lasts even longer. So we're talking about four or 500 years. And really right down to the end uh, of the pandemic, the plague is, is the most forceful infectious disease. There are a lot of other nasty diseases, uh, but, but plague is plague. And uh, we, we really know this from a richer documentary record than, than you might think. So even in, for instance, 17th century London, where we have some pretty amazing uh, public records known as the bills of mortality, where without our modern concepts of germs or the same disease categories we have, they're trying to tabulate how everybody dies. And these are really important. They're imperfect, but they're really important records to have some sense of what diseases are out there. And you can kind of translate them to, to get at least a, a crude picture. And the story they tell about plague is, is pretty remarkable. In the 17th century in London, uh, which, is, which is a pretty amazing place, the, the plague is responsible for all of the worst mortality outbreaks. And so uh, a series of, of plague outbreaks about once a generation that ends in 1665, the Great Plague. They didn't know it at the time, uh, but it was, it was in fact the last time that there would be a major plague outbreak uh, in London. But, but we do have some records that help us see that there's a lot of diseases on the horizon in pre-modern societies, but plague really stands out when this rodent disease gets a hold of our black rats and the fleas start jumping from rats to humans. Uh, it, was, it was a terrifying thing like really nothing else. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Cities are places where people try to figure out how to live together. They don't understand the microbial causes of disease, but our, our forebears were, were clever in their own ways. And they knew that, um, that sanitary regulations promoted health. They, you know, your nose isn't the worst guide to, to what's dirty and dangerous. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. 
Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. I'm moving on now to think about the modern Atlantic era. So European travellers go over to the Americas and the Eastern and the Western Hemispheres are reunited. So this is a key milestone in globalisation, but also in the globalisation of disease. How much of a factor do you think the spreading of disease was in the decimation of Indigenous peoples? Well, I think it, it's a it's a really important question. And it's one that's become controversial because... Um, there was an earlier generation of historians in the 60s, 70s, and 80s that may have, for one, overestimated the the scale of New World societies, so their populations, uh, and two, may have been a little monocausal in saying, look, smallpox came and, um, and spread like wildfire, uh, even faster than the Europeans could. And there was sort of a reaction to that by historians in the, in the 90s and early 2000s that was very healthy to say it, it really wasn't the infectious diseases alone, but infectious diseases in the greater context of European colonization and extraction of metal resources and eventually um, the formation of plantation societies. And so I think that that balance is healthy, but I, I do believe it's important to, to really underscore the importance of trying to understand the, the period of European expansion across the Atlantic um, in, in two ways. One is to, to really recognize as we've, as we've known that the, the biological dimensions of this encounter are really important. The, the sudden introduction of not just one or two, but, but an entire array of really, really significant pathogens like smallpox and measles and diphtheria and mumps all at once was very much part of the encounter. And the written sources, both from Europeans and uh, Native American societies are really insistent about that, that, that one of the, the fundamental dynamics of this encounter is the fact that old world societies had more diseases and different diseases than new world societies. And that imbalance played into the, to the power dynamics. And the reasons for that are, are really due to the history and the ecology of old world diseases. They're um, there are reasons why the, the existence of some of these pathogens in, in the old world uh, had developed. Now, 
Secondly, though, I, I think we've, we've kind of known that piece of the story. We're learning new things about it. Um, still, there's an important archaeogenetic study uh, in the last couple of years that showed that uh, in one population in um, central southern Mexico, where there was clearly a mass mortality in the middle of the, the 1540s that we know well from written sources, that one of the pathogens that really popped out when the DNA was sequenced was paratyphoid fever. That is not usually given top billing in the, the kind of story of European germs, which usually focuses on smallpox. Uh, and so that's interesting, too, because it reminds us that it wasn't just the introduction of one or two germs. It was a lot of germs. And again, these fecal oral pathogens that that transmit and uh, feces that infect water and food were really important. But the, I think it's important we also try to zoom out and not just focus on Europeans bringing uh, a handful of respiratory and diarrheal diseases, but to see this really in global perspective. And that includes the, the encounters between Europeans and Africans and new world environments. And one of the really important things that, that happens in this period is that particularly tropical crops, so plants, as well as pests from the tropics, both insect pests, but also microbial ones, are transferred via the, the slave trade and the systems of plantation agriculture and the exchange networks that they created and required help transfer pathogens from the old world tropics, largely from equatorial Africa, to the, the new world environments, particularly South America, the Caribbean, and the very southern United States. And this is this probably doesn't kind of have the same place in our public consciousness that, say, the arrival of smallpox does. But the, the transfer of yellow fever and malaria, which are tropical diseases, to the, the new world is, in the long run, just as important in the, the formation of a disease environment and shaping human health and demography. And that's even not the only way in which I think it's important to try and see these diseases in global perspective. It, it's worth pointing out that the, the first smallpox pandemic in the new world that we know of, 15, 18, 15, 19, the following years, is a very, very serious and deadly uh, event. But amazingly, smallpox got to be a bigger problem basically everywhere in the world right at this time. And so it, it's kind of uh, wrong to focus on just that you know, smallpox arriving in, in Mexico uh, and not see that smallpox is a, a terrific force of destruction in Ming China at exactly the same time. So I think globalization is exactly the right word to use and to try and put that, that important encounter between European societies and the new world into this bigger perspective in which what really takes off in many ways from the 16th century is just a new age of, of globalization in general. And you mentioned earlier in the conversation the rise of cities, and this is something I really wanted to find out more about. What does the creation of the modern city, what effect does that have on infectious disease? Well, cities are... Uh, a huge part of the story of human disease because they bring people together. They bring people together. And so they're sharing 
space. They're sharing air. Uh, they're sharing water. They're sharing. Um, they're sharing uh, sewage space. They're sharing insects. They're sharing lice and fleas. Uh, and cities were really deadly places. There's there's just a lot of evidence from a lot of different parts of the world that. Uh, country life was healthier. People in the country lived longer. They grew taller. Uh, they they bore less of a burden of infectious disease. But cities still drew migrants. They were they were economic magnets. They're culturally exciting um, throughout m- most of our past as they are now. And and so even though there was a, a huge penalty to pay in terms of health and mortality. Um, cities drew people and ended up being a demographic sink uh, and uh, and creating a, a kind of place where where people would go and disproportionately would die and really no ancient or medieval or even early modern city could reproduce itself. Its death rates were always higher than than birth rates, so they relied on the constant influx of of people. But but diseases, infectious diseases thrived in cities. Diseases of waste, like typhoid, diseases of the respiratory tract, like tuberculosis. And so there's a a really important dynamic in human history in which cities allow the the evolution and circulation of diseases in which they create uh, really strong demographic differences between the town and the countryside. But I also want to say cities are places of innovation, and that's a very deep part of the human story. And I think we can recognize that already in antiquity and ancient Greece and Rome, for instance, cities are places where people try to figure out how to live together. They don't understand the microbial causes of disease, but our, our forebears were, were clever in their own ways. And they knew that, um, that sanitary regulations promoted health. They, you know, your nose isn't the worst guide to, to what's dirty and dangerous. And, and throughout the, the late Middle Ages in particular, there are amazing efforts to, to create more sanitary environments. Even so, the, the capacity of, of towns and governments to do so was, was limited relative to the modern city. And to, to make a long story short, what happens in the, the modern period behind the forces of the Industrial Revolution is really intense urbanization in the early 19th century. And this actually, for a time, is such an overwhelming force that it it sort of stalls the improvements in health and life expectancy overall in much of the early industrializing world between 1800 and 1850. Human health, on average, doesn't get much better, even though there are important discoveries and advances that are happening moving in the other direction is the fact that people are moving to cities that are where housing is often unregulated, where the supply of fresh water is limited or non-existent. But over the 19th and particularly in the, from the mid to late 19th century, there's a series of really rapid innovations in technology, but particularly in policy that, that allow cities to become uh, much healthier places. And so from the regulation of, of housing and labor to above all the provision of, of clean water and public sewage systems that remove waste from the, the human environment 
proved to be absolutely revolutionary. So there, there is a, an important story in which technology and policy come together in the later 19th century to, to catalyze the rise of, of much, much cleaner cities. And then we have this concept that you call, well, that you refer to called the Great Escape, which is where societies start making profits and also people's life expectancies start going up rapidly, so they more than double. What causes this? Do they cause each other or is something else at play? Well, I borrow the the term Great Escape. It's the title of a book by an economist named Angus Deaton who wrote a, a wonderful study of this phenomenon. And it really entails two things that have happened globally since 1750. And this is zooming out very much, but um, the average human life expectancy has more than doubled and human populations are vastly wealthier than they used to be. And to me, this is one of the great questions of, of history. How did, how did that happen? Um, down to 1750, there'd been no improvements in human life expectancy throughout the entire history of our species. Down to about 1750, there'd been very modest improvements in human prosperity. Most people in pre-modern times were, were by our standards, uh, extremely poor. And uh, modernity achieves a level of economic growth and prolongation of human life. That is, that is one of the, the great questions of history is to say, how did, how did that happen? And uh, it's, a, it's a big story. There's lots of um, dimensions to it. But uh, I, I try to tell the story in terms of two forces that really allowed humans to gain control of infectious disease. And it's science and statecraft. It's the, the rapidly accelerating discoveries that began with the Enlightenment and the rise of empirical science that allow ever greater control uh, and understanding of infectious disease. And so just to, to pinpoint one, one moment um, from a, the background of a much broader series of transformative discoveries, think of Edward Jenner's publication in 1798 uh, about vaccination. People had sort of started to, to intuit that there were possibilities here, but he was really the one who brought it all together and in 1798, uh, he publishes the results of his, his studies of what happens when you intentionally uh, infect someone with cowpox uh, in order to prevent them from in being infected by smallpox, which is at that time the, the worst disease in, in England and much of Western Europe and the United States is a, a just uh, unfathomably terrible disease. And um, Jenner's publication on smallpox, Thomas Jefferson, the American president, um, called it the, the discovery of the single greatest utility in the history of medicine. And up to that time, I think he was right. I think smallpox did more to improve the human condition and control of infectious disease. Uh, and that's, a, that's an example of science. And then you can think about the, the progressive discovery of microbes and the more systematic invention of vaccines, ultimately pharmaceuticals and insecticides, uh, other forms of clinical care that have improved outcomes and reduced the, the burden of infectious disease. But the flip side of that story, I think, is what we can call really broadly statecraft because scientific discovery by itself doesn't improve human health. It has to affect behavior and culture and institutions. And it's really that combination of 
good science, with good policy, uh, with, with behavioral and social adaptations that help bring infectious diseases under control. So just stick with the story of smallpox. Edward Jenner shows in 1798 that, it, that vaccination works. Uh, but smallpox doesn't go away immediately. It, it, mortality is directly reduced. But over the course of the 19th century, this happens in Britain and ultimately happens in the United States. You have to convince people that smallpox vaccination works. You have to, um, you have to embed it in systems of delivery where they can get vaccination. And ultimately, frankly, you, we, societies had to require vaccination. It, it was made compulsory. And the, the scope and power of the, the state and its ability to compel citizens to, to do things, frankly, whether um, they wanted to or not, was, was fundamental to achieving control over, over that disease. So that's just one example of the way, the bigger story of how it's improvements in knowledge that allow prevention and treatment uh, and improvements in statecraft which we can think of as a whole array of, of social adaptations that allow humans to gain the upper hand, but never completely vanquish the challenges of infectious disease. Mm, of course, we know that all too well yes. at the moment, sadly. And before we come on to that, I thought, when am I going to have an opportunity to ask someone who's written a book about the entire history of disease? I open my mind to some very horrible worms, um, but I wanted to ask you, what is an epidemic or a disease that is completely overlooked by us now that you wish we all knew more about? Well, I've already I've already gone on about diarrheal diseases, so I'll, <laughs> I'll leave that to the side. But you you know, I did write a whole chapter about the the germs that used to to lurk in in human poop. So um, clearly, that's a, a kind of uh, hobby horse that uh, that I have strong feelings about. We just get so obsessed with the plague and the big respiratory infections that they kind of get left out. But, but yeah, you said worms. And uh, that, I think that's, that's probably what I'd want to answer. And um, the, the burden of disease from soil transmitted worms, like helminths uh, that such as um, hookworm that have been really one of the, the great diseases of, of history. They aren't quick killers, so they're not quite as dramatic uh, but they they really are parasites that drain um, energy and possibility from human beings, and uh, and so hookworm is is one of the really big overlooked diseases. The other one that uh, that I spend some time on in the book uh, is schistosomiasis, which is you know just hard to say, and so uh, it, it doesn't get the um, you know maybe attention or celebrity that that it deserves, but. Uh, it's also a, a worm disease. That's one of those that's sort of out there and just doesn't doesn't have the place in consciousness. So one of the things I try to do in the book, and I'm hoping, uh, with to the best of my ability, that it's trying to be a global history. And so this isn't just about the the diseases of Western Europe. I think that's a very blinkered view and makes it hard to really understand the the history of of human health. And part of that means changing the the diseases that you talk about so this obviously smallpox and plague are are biggies there's no no doubt about that and i think we have to give them their due but if we broaden the the lens and and talk more about 
about malaria, which is a pretty obvious one, but even some of these diseases like hookworm and yellow fever and schistosomiasis and lymphatic filariasis that are really important human diseases that just, they don't have the same, they don't have the same celebrity. They, they, um, for, for various reasons, a lot of it has to do that either they never were a major burden in Western Europe and the United States, or they were eradicated so early that they don't have the kind of, I don't know, um, the, the kind of dramatic power for us. But I, I've tried to make some of these, these obscure diseases a, a little more interesting and to explain why they're really important. So we mentioned COVID-19, which is where I'd like us to to leave the discussion. As a historian of disease, was COVID-19 inevitable? And do you think we'll have future pandemics? Is this something we should be getting used to? Well, it's a question I get asked a lot. And I'm a, I'm a historian, so I like to have a few thousand years perspective before I form a, an opinion. I will say I started writing this book in 2017. Uh, and it was framed as, uh, in part, as a warning. And it, I wanted it to say, look, infectious diseases are caused by microorganisms that uh, exist because of evolution. And nature never stops. Evolution never stops. And we should see that the, the modern period is, in many ways, uh, uh, defined by this triumphant achievement, the achievements of doubling, more than doubling global life expectancy and changing the, the stability of life, the reduction of pain, suffering, and death because of science and statecraft is miraculous. But we didn't just come along and wipe all of these infectious diseases off the face of the earth forever. In fact, I would say one of the important perspectives that a deep history of disease can give us is that we achieved these triumphs against an ever escalating threat of infectious disease. As we've multiplied and our cities have gotten bigger and we created fossil fuel driven transport, diseases have emerged constantly. New ones and old ones, cholera, plague, the great influenza, polio, AIDS. So the last two centuries have just been full of examples of really, really nasty new or resurgent diseases that that we've often failed to control, sometimes partly controlled, uh, and in the last generation had largely managed to dodge some bullets and to um, avoid some, some disasters, but had several close calls, including with several coronaviruses. And, and so was it inevitable in some shape or form Yes, there are microbes that are trying to adapt to the to the human host, and um, the the evolution of a respiratory virus was one of the, I think, most um, foreseeable kinds of of outcome. Um, viruses uh, that that travel via the respiratory tract are uh, able to take advantage of our global connectivity. Viruses mutate very quickly, so they're sort of evolutionary superstars. They're always trying nasty things. And um, there's more humans intruding on more ecosystems that are more interconnected, that are abusing more and different kinds of animals than at ever any time in the past. And, and so coronaviruses had already been kind of knocking at the door. SARS-1 was a, was a wake-up call. And we were warned 
public health experts, microbiologists, specialists in emerging infectious diseases told us, be prepared. Uh, in 1991 in America, the Institute of Medicine issued a blue ribbon panel to, to sound the alarm bell. We've been warned for a long time and we were complacent. And um, unfortunately, we were not up to, to the meeting the challenge of COVID-19 in many ways. I think with perspective, there have been some remarkable successes in the, the story of COVID-19, above all on the, the technical side, the invention of three really safe and really effective vaccines in less than a year is, is a marvel. Uh, but I think on the, the social side, the, the response has been wanting. But again, I'm a historian. I, I like to have a little more perspective. There's only a couple of pages on COVID in the book because this really wasn't originally born as a COVID book. Obviously, I was about halfway done when COVID started and I worked like crazy to um, do my best to, to finish it um, because it became urgent in a, in a way I hadn't anticipated. And I do hope that you know, history isn't a, a tea leaves that tell us the future, but it, it tells us how we got here and it, I think, can shape the, the way we understand the, the threats that face us and hopefully um, can, can give us a deeper sense of how important global health is and why we need to, to be preparing ourselves for, for the next one. COVID's not over, but um, even when it is, it won't be the last time that we face a, a novel infectious disease. That was Kyle Harper. His new book, Plagues Upon the Earth, Disease and the Course of Human History, is out in the UK, published by Princeton University Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us again tomorrow when I'll be speaking to Nick Baker and John Wolfe about the surprising secrets of Edwardian Britain. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.